Hello, I'm Jason Solomons, and welcome to the February edition of Sounds Jewish. On this month's show, Sex, Lies and Audio Tape, the scandal of the American ultra-Orthodox rabbi allegedly offering conversion in return for sexual favours. Plus, an exclusive preview of the newly transformed Jewish Museum in London. And yes, it's the season of romance and love. And very, very fast conversations with single Jewish people you've only just met. Yes, the highs and lows and short goodbyes of Jewish speed dating. I saw the advertising and stuff and I thought, well, why not? I'm single after all. It's about 30, I should get married soon, shouldn't I? <laughs> this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. Joining me in the podcast studio this month for the first time is the Jewish Chronicle's foreign editor, Miriam Shaviv. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you very much. And to documentary maker and sounds Jewish friend, Tim Samuels. Hello, Jason. Uh, you made a speed dating documentary in New York, didn't you? Uh, I did, but speed dating, amongst other things, it was um, a Radio 4 documentary which involved throwing the kitchen sink at the New York Jewish dating scene for a week. So sp- speed dating was a component, amongst other things. And did you find what you were looking for? Uh, I found half an hour's quality public service broadcasting, but I didn't come back with the missus. Romantic love is a million miles away from a scandal that's currently rocking Jewish opinion in New York, and it's also having huge repercussions here in Britain. The row centres on tapes which allegedly reveal a rabbi, thought to be Rabbi Lieb Tropper, offering to convert a non-Jewish woman, Shannon Orand, so long as she gives him what he wants. In this clip you're about to hear, the man makes one of several references in the tapes to phone sex. Um, you know, I, I'm not ready to do it right now, but can we talk about sex? Can you just talk about, would you have a problem with talking about sex to a guy or only actually doing it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to hide it, hide anything. Only it's you, you're the person. A rabbi talking like that to anybody would always be big news. So the alleged rabbi, Tropper, is no ordinary rabbi, however. He is, in fact, the founder of Eternal Jewish Family, which means he's been responsible for hundreds, if not thousands, of conversions. Indeed, the group has huge influence over who is and who is not allowed to convert all over the Jewish world, including here in the UK. I'm joined now by American journalist Alison Hoffman, who's followed the case closely for Tablet magazine from New York. Alison, welcome to Sounds Jewish. Uh, can we start from the beginning of this very bizarre case? Who exactly is this mysterious Rabbi Tropper? Tropper is someone who got his start many, many years ago. He comes from Munzee, which is a small um, town just about half an hour outside of New York City. It's an ultra-Orthodox enclave where... Um, there are, I mean, every street that you go up and down, there are yeshivas, there are uh, shtibbles, there are schools for people who are secular Jews who want to come back to um, ultra-Orthodoxy or come to ultra-Orthodoxy. Um, and for many years, Tropper ran one of these schools, and he was known um, as somebody who reached out to secular Jews and tried to bring them into the world of Torah study. Um, about Six or seven years ago, he expanded into another branch of the Jewish world, which is conversions, um, and uh, did that through this organization, Eternal Jewish Family, which started with, uh, you know, the most straightforward of uh, of principles. They said, "Look, it's very difficult for people to know who uh, who they can go to for a conversion. Uh, some rabbis charge a lot of money, and then it turns out that the conversions don't stand up in Israel." So. The idea, I think, originally was to 
set up some sort of system for standardizing conversions uh, throughout the U.S. that would also enable people to uh, be guaranteed acceptances, Jews in Israel, but then things clearly went off the rails. How have uh, phone conversations from Rabbi Tropper ended up like some kind of, you know, Watergate, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, the conversation movie? How have they ended up filtering onto the internet with this very murky um, uh, and if not kind of uh, downright sordid uh, details that, that you wouldn't have expected to, to find uh, anywhere near a synagogue? Well, as far as we can understand it, uh, a woman named Shannon Orand, who is the daughter of a preacher in Houston, Texas, um, she is in her early 30s. She has uh, children. She was married. Uh, she was in the process of getting divorced, and she found Judaism through actually not Rabbi Tromper, through a different rabbi who specializes in reaching out to um, Jews who have become evangelical Christians. And uh, through a series of other intermediaries, she wound up, uh, this woman, Shannon Orand, wound up meeting Rabbi Tropper and doing some work for him. She had experience in marketing. And so she was based in Houston and uh, decided that she wanted to convert to Judaism. And, and this Rabbi Tropper told her he could make it happen. Um, Shannon Orand was in touch with one of my colleagues here, Marissa Brostoff. And uh, as far as we understand it, she claims that the rabbi offered to help her uh, pay for attorney fees in a custody battle that she's in with her ex-husband over their children. Um, and, uh, and the price that the rabbi exacted was that he wanted her to engage in phone sex or possibly more with, uh, with people he was sending down to Houston. So at some point, according to Ms. Orand, she started recording these conversations because she wanted to essentially have them uh, as proof should she ever need to give them to other rabbis who involved. Now, she claims uh, and, and insists that she never intended for these tapes to make it to the Internet. But as we all know, in this digital world, sometimes you can't control where things go. What we do know is that in mid-December, um, certainly, uh, you know, possibly earlier, but certainly by mid-December, these tapes were circulating uh, in the ultra-Orthodox blog, blogosphere. Uh, there were posters that were put up in Jerusalem, uh, signed anonymously, uh, anonymously the, so the shocked sons of Torah, um, demanding that Rabbi Tropper step down from his position and citing the tapes, uh, not only the audio tapes, but also videotapes. I'm going to bring in Miriam Shaviv, the Jewish Chronicles foreign editor here at Allison, because uh, she sort of uh, found this story and broke it here to the UK audience. Um, what is the significance uh, of this uh, with more worldwide per percussions? Well, I think that you actually asked the right question right at the beginning, which is how did this Rabbi Tropper actually gain so much influence so quickly? And I think that Allison was obviously correct in saying that especially in the United States, there is no one central authority like there is here, so it was relatively easy. But I think it's actually deeper than that. I think that he presented himself and his, um, his conversion process as more stringent, better, more true to Jewish tradition. Um, in short, it was an ultra-Orthodox conversion process. And people, I think, um, were pretty scared to say, no, actually, that's not the best. That's not necessarily the best way to do it. And in, in actual fact, that's what's been going on all over the world. It's certainly true in Israel, where there's been a massive push over the last few years um, f for more stringent 
standards for conversion. The ultra-Orthodox are in control of the conversion courts in Israel, and it's certainly true there. It's true here as well, um, and it's really more of a worldwide thing. So even though Rabbi Tropper didn't really have any direct influence in Europe, even though, by the way, he was trying to gain some, and the rabbis here did resist it, um, He's, he's certainly part of a worldwide um, direction and push. What, what's the effect been on, on, on modern orthodoxy? Because if for anyone not familiar with the, the, the multi-layered circles of Judaism, from liberal to reform to ultra-orthodox to Haredi to modern orthodox, it's a, it's a very difficult kind of area. And uh, we're looking at conversions here that are valid in some areas and some not of the Venn diagram. What, what's, where, how does this affect the modern orthodox? I think it's been an, a massive wake-up call because I think it was clear to the modern Orthodox rabbis in North America all along, they were not interested in this more stringent approach to conversions, and they were indeed very puzzled by it and very affronted. One of the things that Tropper did was, um, in conjunction with the Israeli courts, he essentially limited the amount, uh, sorry, he limited the number of American rabbis whose conversions would be valid in America to a very, very small number of of rabbis. Um, This was terrible for the modern Orthodox rabbis because essentially all their authority was taken away. Their conversions would no longer be valid in America. But they didn't really know how to counter that. And I think this has been, ironically, a boost to their confidence. I think a lot of people are walking around now saying we should have had more Uh, um, we should have been able to say at the time this is not what we want, it's not right for our community and it's given them a push to do something about it. Uh, Alison, if I can bring, bring you back in here. What happened to, to Shannon Oran, can I ask? Is she now, is she converted now, or is she, is she run, a, run, a, run a mile <laughs> off? And... No, she, she actually, uh, in the midst of all of this, she traveled to Israel and obtained a conversion from a different uh, organization, a different set of rabbis, and so now, as far as we understand it, is living as a Jew. She, um, she is back in Texas. She, I think, was not happy with the way that... Uh, that all of this came out, but she uh, has pretty much gone to ground. But as far as anybody has understood, as far as she told us, she is uh, totally committed to her Judaism. She does not uh, connect what happened with the rabbi with uh, with the rest of Jewry or with, with what she wants to be practicing with the rest of her life. Uh, she needs to change her name from Shannon, it strikes me, if she really wants to convert fully, because there's no <laughs> Jewish girls called Shannon. Well, she did take on a, a Jewish name, which I believe is Rachel. Um, there you go. Now you can come there in. There you go. This case has repercussions, I think, for a very high-profile case here in the UK, uh, whereby uh, a boy was trying to get into the Jewish free school, our, our kind of most uh, famous Jewish school here, uh, but wasn't allowed in because his mother hadn't had the, the right sort of conversion. How does this impact on, on that ruling, if you say that Rabbi Chopper's uh, methods were, were, were going to have some influence here? I don't think that it impacts directly, but I think that it does basically create the overall feeling that there is something very wrong with our conversion system, that both in America and here and in Israel, um, there's been a push over the last few years, like I said before, for a strictly orthodox uh, conversion system, um, which basically most people can't. Um, they can't commit to that kind of life, and it's not the kind of standard that was required beforehand. I think that uh, even last week in the Jewish Chronicle, for example, Rabbi Yitzchak Shochet 
um, published a piece saying that because the system is broken, now there should be no no orthodox conversions whatsoever. Well, this is a little bit of a absurd position to take because essentially it's the ultra-orthodox, as far as I'm concerned, who broke the system by imposing stricter and stricter and stricter conditions. But I think it is an indication of how people here and across the world are really treating this as a major crisis. After a closure of nearly two years, London's celebrated Jewish Museum will finally reopen its doors next month following a £10 million facelift. Formerly split across two sites, the much-loved landmark now occupies one large, bold space in Camden Town. The collection contains a fascinating display of religious artefacts and personal mementos. Although the Jewish Museum traces the beginning of Jews in Britain back to 1066, no, I didn't know that either, I decided to focus my exclusive preview tour with exhibition project leader Sarah Gillings on only one small part of the museum, the bit that tells my own story, the influx of East European Jews to the East End of London, where my great-grandparents first settled over 100 years ago and where my grandparents were born and grew up. So this is a, a walk down memory lane, which is just off Brick Lane, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I mean, as you walk along the section of the gallery, you can uh, open the doors to uh, the East End synagogues and hear the sound of uh, the prayers in the morning and see some of the objects that you might have found in a sort of typical East End synagogue. There was about 100,000 people in the Jewish East End at its height. So, and again, you can see this map here um, sort of shows the sort of density of Jewish population. Some streets were 95 to 100% Jewish. So it was a real little sort of atmosphere of Eastern Europe transplanted to East London. Forgive me, I'm being distracted by the names. Um, this is where my grandfather lived, Chicksand Street, just here. Yeah, I, I think there are so many people from the Jewish community who are going to come to the museum and discover their family history in this part of the gallery. It's, it's, it's very much part of people's own personal family histories. What's this? This is a little box here. Yeah, you pick up a card and um, you've got four characters to choose from. Uh, we have created a family called the Jablonskis. It's based on memoirs and original uh, primary sources. And we created a, a family of characters, um, dad, mum and two of their children, at different points in the family history to sort of reflect the story of what would happen to a typical East End immigrant family. So you meet the father not long after he's arrived from Poland when he's trying to make a work as a cabinet maker. He's left his wife back in Poland. Until I found lodgings, I had to sleep under the workbench. The other workers would arrive in the morning and make jokes about me. You see, I was so tired at first. They often found me still asleep. Here we are in our immigrant home evocation, and you can see on the wallpaper the damp on the walls that there would have been. And, you know, the, the mothers of the family were struggling to feed their families adequately. They're, it wasn't easy, but people made of it what they could. There was a really strong emphasis on education and sort of making a better life for the next generation. Well, we're in the kitchen here as well. Is this a, this is a holler being made? Yes, you a can. ceremonial bread? Yeah, you can have a go at platting the challah bread and, um, and you can also lift the lid on the, uh, on the saucepan and smell the chicken soup. Oh, oh, wow. That's quite pungent stuff. It's quite is. pungent stuff. You've actually got 
chicken soup in a bottle here. Essence of chicken soup. We, eau de eau de poulet. We, we have eau de poulet. Yes, um, it's amazing what smells you can recreate. So when we tested it in the office, everyone said, "Yep, that smells like chicken soup." The chicken soup is now on my fingers now. <laughs> I mean, am I ever going to get rid of this? This is going to mark me no, for life, isn't for it? Life, yeah, yeah but, no, I don't care. I'm proud. <laughs> We wander out of uh, an immigrant home, down the street. We go past the original uh, frontage for Grzynski Bake. as a photograph of that in Fieldgate Street. Uh, Schmutter business, another one, or the tailoring trade, as you so rightly call it. Well, absolutely. It is the immigrant Jewish trade par excellence. I think 60% of Jewish immigrants were involved in the trade. It's hugely important in the history of the Jewish East End. So here we are in our tailor's workshop, and uh, we're standing right by our original tailor's table, and you can pick up one of those pressing irons and feel just how heavy they were. Here's a corner of the old East End after my own heart, the Yiddish Theatre, the Grand Palais. What a nice, grand, foreign-sounding name for what really was a bunch of Jews in wigs. <laughs> oh, don't be demeaning. The Yiddish Theatre was a hugely important part of the Jewish East End and we have a really spectacular collection that's never been on public display before uh, on a permanent basis so we're really excited about this section and it's it's a, a reminder that there was some really great things in the East End and a really rich culture and Yiddish is such a fabulously expressive language so we wanted to bring that to life and what we've done is we've created a Yiddish theatre karaoke um, and we were very lucky to uh, get the services of David Schneider whose grandparents were actually in the Yiddish theatre in there, London. There's a picture of his grandfather who looks I mean for, David's a regular on the show of course, he looks a bit like his grandfather, it has to be said. <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly comment, but yes, his grandfather's sitting out of the prompt box while uh, uh, what, prompting Shylock to do his uh, role properly. What sort of shows could we see at, at Yiddish Theatre? Oh, there was a huge variety of shows. I mean, comedy, tragedy, melodrama. They reworked Shakespeare, you know, because they could do it better than the originals. So it was a big part of East End Jewish families' lives. They'd go after Shabbos was out on Saturday and uh, take along their food and sit there and, you know, tell the actors what was good about their performance and what wasn't. Every Jew's a Simon Cowell at heart. <laughs> Here, here's a wonderful idea. Uh, looking at the actual photos that were taken by a working photographer from the East End. I mean, Boris Bennett is his name uh, and the, the photographs he's produced uh, of weddings I mean they look exactly like one that my my uh, grandfather and grandmother had of them on their wedding day it's beautiful kind of like a Fred and Ginger glamour that they had yeah Boris created a little sense of Hollywood for 1930s uh, Jewish EastEnders I mean his photography was absolutely spectacular he created beautiful images, really sort of Art Deco styling in his studio and very glamorous portraits of these sort of uh, East End tailors and shop workers. And on a Sunday, he could photograph up to 30 couples in one, in one day. They'd come to the studio on the Whitechapel Road and uh, have their portrait taken. And you knew you'd made it if your picture was put in Boris's window. You were really... You know, you were really married then. We were talking about uh, Jews living on and, and, and the, whole, the culture kind of agglomerating and, and continuing to thrive. Are there modern objects that you would keep collecting, keep going? Yeah, we still do collect. I think the challenge for anyone involved in contemporary collecting is deciding what's significant, what will mean something in 20 years' time, 50 years' time. You know, we found some... Uh, paper bags from a gold as green Jewish fruit shop in the 1960s. That was brilliant to have because it's no longer there and it's a sort of real evidence of the changing nature of the Jewish community. I can give you my permits for video if you want from the 80s. <laughs> well, I can't imagine anything better. <laughs> and the new Jewish Museum in London will reopen on the 17th of March.
Your mum's been nagging you for ages every time you go home for dinner. There's the Jewish Chronicle open at the events pages and conversation turns to Rachel Greenfield, who's just got married. And that nice Michael Gold, who you went to school with, has just had a little girl. When is it going to happen to you? Just when are you going to meet a nice Jewish boy or girl? But listen, people, help is out there. And with Valentine's Day approaching, the possibility of love is in the air. So why not give Jewish dating another chance? Sounds Jewish reporter Rhonda Goldstein, you can't sound more Jewish than that, tracked down some young single Jewish hopefuls for some speed dating action in which you have seven minutes to hit it off with the man or woman of you or your mother's dreams. Hi, my name is Michal and I'm the director of The Speed Dating. Um, I'm also a matchmaker. I uh, cater for professionals, Jewish, that are possibly too busy to look around and go out and look for a match, so they use my help. And um, so far, it's been very successful. Our events are uh, hosted in a very friendly, relaxed way. We, uh, we are very warm to, to people who arrive. It's not like you've come to a place where you feel like, oh my God, I've just wandered into this dating place and these people and I don't know how to do and how to say anything. It's more like you've just wandered into a bar and uh, you, by chance, get to meet people that could be suitable for you uh, age-wise and profession-wise. I'm here at The Speed Dating at the very trendy Gilgamesh and I'm talking to a, a lovely young man. What are you hoping to get out of this evening? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose the same as everyone else, you know. Uh, date would be uh, would be a good start, I think. A very good start. And have you been to a speed dating event before? I've been to, I've been to two before. And how did they go? They were all right. Well, not that good because I'm back. Hi, nice to meet you. Have you attended a Jewish speed dating event no, before this one? No, not at all. I haven't at all. I thought I'd give it a try. It was so exciting. I saw the advertising and stuff and I thought, well, why not? I'm single after all. It's about 30. I should get married soon, shouldn't I? <laughs> Does your mother know you're here tonight? No, 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 no. But maybe I should tell her. Maybe she might be excited. I don't know. Maybe they might think I might find my, my future husband here. I don't know. Well, what are, what are your expectations for tonight? What do you expect to get out of this evening? Do you know what? I just would like to have some nice conversation with some nice people. Um, if I make one or two friends, girls or boys, that would be cool. Um, if not, I'll just be excused to just have a drink, I suppose. <laughs> and what words of wisdom are run- racing through your head? What are you telling yourself as you prepare to embark upon this evening of speed dating? I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. But at the same breath, I'm thinking, hell, why not? It's like the 21st century now. So away you go. Well, yes. <laughs> Wish me luck. So you like movies in general? Yeah, yeah, I like, I like. I don't find the time to go to see enough of them, but I quite like them. Yeah, <laughs> I know it is. I saw Avatar. Ooh, that's more my list. Oh, that was absolutely brilliant. What can you find out about a person in seven minutes? 
I think you can uh, firstly find out their their energy. So that there the the something if there could be a chemistry, you would find it, it, this out in the first few minutes of your conversation. You can ask any questions. It's not like you need to ask the regular questions of uh, so how old are you? So where do you live? What do you do for work? I invite people to be much more creative and just have a chat with somebody, even if it's not informative. I think you can learn a lot about somebody's even the way they 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 dialogue with you in a natural, spontaneous way. Okay, so now that it's over, how did it go? Well, as you can probably hear, I've just actually met a friend. His name's Peter. He's 32. He's like, I don't know, 5 foot 10 or something like that. A bit dark, but quite sweet, so he kind of caught my eye. So we'll, we'll see what happens, really. There's a guy, a Jewish guy in his 30s, that uh, came quite a few times uh, to my events. And every time he was calling me and saying, so what do you think, should I come? And I said, yes, of course. Are, are These are the same girls. And we're like, no, these are not the same girls. These are different girls and you should come and, you know, give it a try. And he did come. He came seven, eight, nine, ten times. Uh, and then before the eleventh time and the last time he came, he said to me, Michal, this is the last time I'm coming. I can't take it anymore. Maybe I'll find a non-Jewish girlfriend. Um, and that was in January two years ago. And he what do you know, met his uh, match. These, these, this couple are now married. He called me a year later to tell me they got engaged. So, you know what, this was the last time he gave it a chance and he got it. So, never give up, that's what I said. Eleventh time lucky. We're very pleased for him. Much nachas here in the Sounds of Jewish studio. Uh, Tim Samuels, uh, you're still here. You've got your own personal experience of the Jewish dating scene, uh, but in New York. In fact, you made your own documentary about it. It was called Find Me a New York Jewish Princess, broadcast on Radio 4, no less. Are you okay? Are you still scarred from your Jewish speed dating? The, um, the scars have just about healed. The eardrums haven't. Um, <laughs> it's it's an, an extraordinary place. Everything that you think it's going to be, it is, and more. As a single Jewish fella with a British accent, just go there. Just just stop what you're doing now. What did they think you were like a Jewish Hugh Grant? That you were so suave, uh, just a debonair, so intelligent, virtually royal. I mean, every cliche w- was true, but with that kind of with the sort of New York savviness and feistiness that w- we find so deeply attractive in them, and, and, and a little bit of height helps, and, and, and the accent. I mean, it, no, I mean it was it was um, it, theoretical rich pickings. But what happened? I was working, you know. <laughs> so you had to make your excuses and leave. Well, I was, I was slapping around a producer and uh, and, and recording equipment, which no, but if you go out with you, Tim, that's what you get. You got to marry the you marry the program. Yeah. Well, normally there's a sound man as well, so at least he wasn't there. Why? Why do you think it conjures up sort of uh, certainly? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's me. There's a certain cringe factor that you think Jewish speed dating. It seems to me that that the, they're sort of they don't really work together. There's it's like the oxymoronic Jewish and speed dating. I mean, we take normally about 15 minutes to say goodbye, uh, seven. <laughs> minutes to say hello this is what i do and all of that it's just too it's too crammed for you in a new york context it works i mean it's seven minutes in new york you could probably fit in about as many words as you would in, in, a, in about a week in england so that it, that's fine i mean i've never been, never i've been lucky enough or unlucky enough never to win through this how yeah. does it actually work at the end you kind of go well i like that i like candidate a b and i like candidate d and i want their number is that how it there's works? a there's a there's a kind of scorecard that you get and um you hand it in at the end, you know, who you tick whether you'd be willing to see them again as a platonically or, or on a date. And uh, where you get matches, you get emailed. You, you kind of wake up the next day and you log on and you get the scores on the doors. Uh, and ironically, the, <laughs> the the one I went to, the two um, two most aesthetically pleasing girls there weren't Jewish. So, really? Uh, yeah, they, just, they, they were ringers. They'd been brought in. Really? They, they just came along because they said, we hear Jewish guys make great husbands. 
and uh, we're here and, and we're willing to convert. But th- I mean, that, ha- that happens, I, I think. They would go, we'd go to, I mean, you know, Rabbi Tropper could be at the door uh, <laughs> and then we've got a really interesting speed dating service, I think. He, he could probably get his conversion With dry down cleaning. To, <laughs> speed dating down to seven minutes for the right <laughs> favour. Um, uh, allegedly. But, I mean, after a speed date, you don't have to do real dating, don't you? Like slow dating. You... Yeah, to probably get to about 12 minutes right. for the second date. <laughs> it's really good. You get to the main course, maybe. Uh, it does sound something that, um, that I'd, I'd kind of like to try it, but only from the safety sure. of, my, of my extremely happy marriage. Um, but, Tim, um, people out there might be listening, sort of go, poor Tim. Mm. He's bruised by New York. He's dissatisfied in Britain. Where, where can you try next? What, what are we going to do? Email, please, uh, Tim Samuels. Uh, his picture is available on our website. He's a very handsome boy. He should be on a poster. Mm. Uh, Miriam, he's a nice boy, isn't he? I'll set him up. You plenty, plenty of lovely friends. Exactly. All over the world she's got contacts, too. Yeah, could be a really we good can se- send you back to New York. There could be a great sequel feature, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> have, you had, have you had a podcast wedding yet? <laughs> <laughs> the first Sounds Jewish wedding. I like the sound of it. I remember when Blind Date uh, with Cilla Black had their first wedding. This, this would get even more coverage around the world with you two here. Uh, Tim Samuels, uh, Miriam Shaviv, thank you very much indeed uh, for coming in to Sounds Jewish today. Thanks to our sponsors, of course, the Jewish Community Centre for London. Before I go, just a quick mention about next month's podcast, which will be recorded entirely on location at Jewish Book Week. Guests will include Israeli writer Edgar Kerrett and American novelist Jonathan Safran Foer. Don't miss that one. From my producer, Sarah Peters, and from me, Jason Solomons, it's goodbye. Shalom, shalom.